You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 35. Like, I rolled it out, and it was okay. But there was a lot of pushback. And I needed to be more specific. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Klar. Before I start today, I want to mention a new initiative from back at the Foursquare office. I know I'm not in the office right now, I know, but I am keeping tabs. So this is for people who want to change the world. If you don't want to change the world, skip this part. There's a 50-second, 15-second skip on the iTunes uh, iPhone app. But if you do, uh, just listen, because this is cool. It's called Foursquare for Good. Listen up, because there's only one week to submit something. It's due on October 16th. But basically, you can propose an idea for a project to use uh, Foursquare's unique location data and venue database for philanthropy and impact. If you think your idea is, quote, out there, I know that's the sort of thing they're looking for, real, creative, fearless people. And all you have to do is submit a proposal by October 16th how you would use Foursquare's location technology. The winner gets access to Foursquare's API and SDK engineering resources and $10,000 to your cause. So check it out. It's called Foursquare for Good. You can search it or just go to foursquare.com slash for good, foursquare.com slash F-O-R dash good. I think the dash is optional, but yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay, foursquare.com slash for good. Um, so this is the first time on the local maximum that we've talked about engineering management. I got a chance to speak to Camille Fournier, former CTO at Rent the Runway, who wrote a book on the topic. I think that this discussion applies to everyone here. You probably all have a manager. Some of you are managers. So, and speaking of Rent the Runway, it's a, it's a web application and recommender system that allows people to rent dresses and other accessories. Uh, a lot of people use it a lot more than I thought. I know my sister uses it. Uh, she said it was great when she's pregnant uh, because she knew she, when she got a dress, she wouldn't fit into it. Again, um, and as a company, I do see some similarities to Foursquare and, and what I'm you know, uh, used to. Both started in New York City in 2009. Both have a recommendation product. Both are product-centric companies that employ a lot of uh, data scientists. So it's not a surprise that we often interact uh, at the same meetups and conferences. Coming back to the book, it's called The Manager's Path, A Guide for Tech Leaders Managing Growth and Change. Reading the book, it occurred to me that we're not really trained on how to think about the engineer-engineering-manager relationship. For example, we ask very simple questions. You know, what does an engineering manager actually do all day? Uh, it's not a simple. It's not the simplest answer in the world, but I think that the book answers that pretty much. Uh, I think that the book um, pretty much answers that, and it gives you an idea of all that's involved. You know, the organizing, the training, the one-on-one -on -one relationships. Um, there's also a series of great checklists in the book, which you can apply to whatever situation you're in. For example, if you hold one-on-one -on -one meetings with reports. Uh, it'd be a good idea to review the list of things to make sure you're doing when you're holding this meeting. So, or these meetings. So, after reading the book, it's a very good reference, and I hope it'll start a series of discussions in many companies that lead to better workplaces. So, I didn't have time here to discuss everything I wanted to talk to Camille about, but I talked about a few of the things that are interesting to me. Uh, you know, company culture, matching people, 
engineering ladders and, and finally finding a creative outlet. So I hope that you can use this discussion to get into more of Camille's work and start having these important conversations in your own workplace. And afterwards, I will talk, uh, talk about some listener emails. Yes, I'm getting quite a few listener emails these days. So this is, it, it's, it's mail day. All right. So Camille Fournier is the head of platform engineering at Two Sigma, a financial company in New York City. Prior to joining Two Sigma, she was the chief technology officer of Rent the Runway, a transformative brand that offers unprecedented access to designer fashion, disrupting the way millions of women get dressed. She is an open source contributor and project committee member for both Apache Zookeeper and the Drop Wizard web framework. Prior to working for Rent the Runway, Camille served as a software engineer for Microsoft and most recently spent several years as a technical specialist at Goldman Sachs, creating distributed systems for managing risk analysis and firm-wide infrastructure. She's a BS in computer science from Carnegie Mellon and an MS in computer science from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Camille is a well-respected voice within tech community, speaking on a variety of topics such as engineering leadership, distributed systems, scaling teams, and technical architecture. In 2017, she released her book, The Manager's Path, a guide for tech leaders navigating growth and change. All right, Camille, welcome to the show. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Thank you for having me. Well, I've been looking forward to it. Your book came you know, highly recommended to me, and I learned a lot from it. And I remember meeting you in 2012. I think that was the only time in the past that we have ever spoke in person. I believe that was the QCon conference in 2012 here in Brooklyn. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, you gave a talk, right? I did. I did. Yes, I remember. I remember it was a good talk. Oh, thank you. I, uh, yeah, I had a good time with that. Uh, so I want to ask you about how your book came to be because you wrote this book, The Manager's Path, after working as a tech lead and CTO at Rent the Runway for... I believe four years, and it's gotten a very positive response. I think that you saw something that was missing in the way that we train engineering managers and talk about engineering management. So my first question to you is, how did you come to the realization that you needed to write this book? And was there something specific that happened, like in your career that was the last straw, or was it kind of a gradual realization over the course of time? So the book came about, I guess, in a, in a few ways. Um, I had been blogging about my experiences becoming a manager and the things that I was learning as I was, you know, doing the CTO job for the first time at Rent the Runway. Um, I had been blogging for pretty much the entire time I had been at Rent the Runway. Um, and, you know, when I started out, my blog was sort of hybrid technical, um, you know, some management stuff. Uh, and you know, over time, it became more focused on management issues. And I was also doing some speaking, again, hybrid, some technical stuff, some management stuff. Um, and then, you know, what, what I was seeing, and part of the reason I was blogging, uh, was that I, what I was seeing in the industry was that for a while there, we had this really big obsession with like managers are bad or management is not necessary. Um, that I feel like was very popular in the, you know, late 2000, you know, late aughts, early 2010s a little bit, where you saw a lot of people that were really like into like the valve flat org chart. And, you know, there was a lot of this like focus on like holacracy and the ways. Uh, what was that? Holacracy? So yeah, so so holacracy was uh, you know this fad that um, there was a book published. I can't even remember the name of it now. Um, I think I do mention it in my book, and uh, Zappos kind of adopted it. And it was this idea that like you could build these companies with no managers, and that 
you know, management was just this overhead idea. And I felt like that was, that was like kind of a popular fad in tech for a while. And, you know, my experience having become a manager and, and just watching, uh, I don't know, just watching my team evolve and like doing the job was just that there were a lot of people that were suffering in tech, particularly in startups, from the fact that the tech industry didn't respect the the job of engineering management. Yeah. And that, you know, that engineers who were just purely hands-on engineers didn't really understand what managers were supposed to do. And VCs were constantly sort of stereotyping management as like pointless overhead and a waste of time. And and there was just this general reluctance to engage with the fact that like actually management is pretty important in companies, you know, in growing companies and big companies and small companies, good managers make a huge amount of difference between how effective teams are, how well the company does, how well you are able to hire people and retain people and how well people work together and all of these different things. And, you know, I was kind of sick of hearing people just, you know, really dismiss the hard work that goes into becoming a manager. Um, I had also just learned a lot. I just learned so much over the time where I was really stretching myself as a manager um, at uh, Rent the Runway, particularly. I did some management before I came to Rent the Runway, but I really, you know, learned much of my, you know, most of my skills in that experience. And, you know, when you, the first time you really learn something and you get a chance to practice it, uh, you just have so many observations about it, or at least I do. Um, So I just had a lot to say. So um, just about three years ago, I actually quit my job at Rent the Runway um, in late 2015. Uh, I, you know, for various reasons, I felt like I had done what I came to do. You know, I, I came in when the company had a fairly small tech team and the technology was really holding the company back. And, you know, over the course of time there, I think I did a really good job of growing the team and, you know, making sure that the technology was no longer the bottleneck and I grew myself and I learned a lot. And, you know, I, you know, at the end of that, I was like, wow, I'm really tired. Working <laughs> you know, a startup is really hard. I'm going to find something else to do. Um, and, but I had all these, all these experiences that I had just gone through that I had just learned. And so, you know, a bunch of people were like, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I was like, I don't know, like, am I really a, an author? Is that really a thing I could do? Um, but since I had, since I left Run the Runway consciously without any kind of job lined up, because I didn't want to just jet, bounce to some other position immediately, I wanted to give myself some time to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, I decided to take some time and try to write down my thoughts. And so I actually did NaNoWriMo, if you've heard of that. It's like the National Novel Writing Month. No. And so it's this month, basically this, this month-long project that a lot of people do in November. And what they do is... It's basically a challenge. That's coming up. Yeah. It's basically a challenge where every day for the month of November, you write, I don't know, 1,500 or 2,000 words. And the goal is that you have some kind of a some kind of a novel by the end of it. And so it's really a, mostly creative writing people, I think, do it. Um, but Every day of the month, that is? Every day of the month of November, you write about 1,500 words, 1,500 to 2,000 words. And at the end of it, you come out with something. 
I like that more than the people who grow the mustaches during that month. Seems like you have something more valuable right. at the well, end you, of it. You, it's, uh, it's more work. Although it's for a good cause, I know. <laughs> I think it's more work than growing a mustache. I don't know. I, I can't grow a mustache at all. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I was like, all right, I'm going to just try for this month and I'm going to try to like see what I can, can write. And I did yeah. it. I did it very diligently every day. Um, and I ended up with like this, roughly 60,000 words and it was definitely not complete. It was not edited. There were like, you know, pages that I kind of wrote half of a thought and then just left it because I was just like, I don't know what I want to say here. Um, but I took this, uh, this manuscript and I, I sent the draft to O'Reilly, um, because I have a pretty good relationship with O'Reilly. Um, yeah. I've been, you know, I've given a lot of talks at conferences with them. Um, and I was like, what do you, what do you folks think? Like, do you like this? And they were like, actually, yeah, like this seems really interesting. We think we can make a book out of this. And so, you know, I was like, all right, well, I don't have a, I don't have a full-time job right now. I'm figuring out what I want to do. And I think there is a need in the industry for someone who's really going to talk about the nuts and bolts of engineering management. Like there, there were books out there that were for leaders. There's a lot of like leadership books, general leadership books out there. Um, there are a few books out there for technical people. Um, but not that many. And I didn't think any of them were really like super nuts and bolts about the way that they approached the path of like growing into a manager and all the different stages that you tend to go through. Um, so um, so that's that's sort of how it came out. Great. Yeah. So I wanted to follow up on a few things you said uh, but before I get into that, I just want to ask you about Rhett the Runway, because I actually asked around before talking to you today, and it turns out that a lot more people that I know uh, use Rent the Runway than I thought. Uh, but I know about Rent the Runway because I went to a lot of meetings with engineers and data scientists there. Whenever I hear that a Rent the Runway engineer is presenting at a tech meetup or conference, I always know that the talk is going to be, it's going to be an interesting talk, it's going to be insightful, and you know, that's not always the case. You know, people listening to this show, people who listen to the local maximum every week might not realize this, but sometimes engineering talks are boring. <laughs> but not so with Rent the Runway. At least that's my impression. Uh, and do you think that it was the nature of the product and the people that you attracted? Tell me a little bit about the culture that you cultivated there. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a few things. I do think that we tried to... Um, you know, we tried to hire creative people. For those of you who are not familiar, Rent the Runway is a brand that uh, you can go to the website or they have an app um, and you can rent designer dresses and accessories. So it's a product for women. Um, and, you know, when we were starting to build up the team, one of the things that I realized is that I needed to hire people, for, first of all, people who were like open-minded and interested in building such a product. Um, there are, you know, there are plenty of engineers for whom that's just not going to be interesting. And that's okay, right? Not everybody likes everything. I wouldn't probably enjoy very much working for a company whose focus was sports because I'm not very interested yeah. in sports. But lots of people are. And and so one of the things that you know I, I really looked for when hiring and growing the team at Red the Runway was people who were who had a kind of a creative side, who had maybe a little bit of an artistic side to them, who appreciated fashion a little bit. I mean, it certainly wasn't a company full of like, you know, wonderful, fashionable people that Fashionistas. wasn't, <laughs> right. That, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't a requirement of the company or anything, but it was a, it was a company where we looked for people who had some affinity for the brand or some affinity for the product we were building. And I think that when you hire people who are excited about the product that they're building, 
um, they're going to give good talks. <laughs> you know, people who are enthusiastic about whatever it is they're working on, you know, they have some, it doesn't have to be pure passion, but like they just have some like, you know, curiosity about it. I think that comes through when you ask those people to to speak about things. And I think the fact that we looked for people who had maybe occasionally on, on, uh, we didn't necessarily look for people who just had standard backgrounds in tech. We had a lot of people who had interesting career paths that brought them into technology, both people who, you know, joined from other industries. One of my former engineers was a poet, a published poet. Um, you know, it was just like a very interesting and diverse group of people. And I think that that, you know, and I think that they all had to care about the customers and the product. And I think that translates really well into giving good talks and, and being good ambassadors for, for the technology team. Yeah, that sounds like a fun place to work. Um, I, I want to get back into engineering management. You start off the book with some passages that really hit home for me, which are some of these issues that uh, come up between engineers and their managers. You know, micromanagement, for example, is an, is an example that everybody knows. But I think that if uh, someone wants to go through all of those, I just suggest getting the book. But my broader question for you is about finding a good match between manager and employee. Do you think there could be a mismatch there, even if you have a great engineer and a great engineering manager? And what can be done about it? Managers have values and personalities. And... Um organizations have values and personalities and not every person is going to do well under every manager and not every person's going to do well in every organization. Um, so, you know, in my, the organization that I run now, I run a platform engineering organization. And, you know, one of the things that I think you need to be able to do to be a good platform engineer is you need to have an appreciation for the operational side of building, you know, software infrastructure, right? If you large scale software infrastructure, a huge amount of the time that is sunk into those projects is once you've built V1 and you're actually running them and scaling them and supporting them. And if you as an engineer are just completely uninterested in the operational considerations of how your software is going to actually be used in real life, you're probably not going to do as well in my organization. And that's, and that's a little bit of a value that I have. And that's something that I have you know, impressed upon my, my management team and, and impressed upon the organization that not everybody is going to be the right fit for this kind of, this kind of work. And that's okay. Right. I mean, if you're just like, if you just like love hacking up, you know, algorithms and, and, you know, exploring data, you probably want to be in an organization that's much more about doing that about, you know, data science or, or those kinds of things. And you're probably not going to really enjoy building long lived software infrastructure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I do think that, you know, when you see a mismatch between an engineer and a manager, sometimes the right thing to do is just to say, you know what, maybe this engineer is not on the right team. Or frankly, occasionally, sometimes this manager is not managing the right part of the organization. Um, you know, every manager, it's, it's just as likely, especially if you see it repeatedly, yeah. right, that you may have a manager who's being asked to do something that they're just not very good at. Not every manager is good at everything either. So there are plenty of managers who are like really good at managing, let's say, you know, really creative front end engineers who, uh, you know, need to work closely with design teams or with product teams. And they need to be able to like iterate quickly through user experiences and things like that. Um, that would be terrible at managing cranky infrastructure engineers who, 
you know, are not nearly as maybe as sociable, you know, yeah, that's not all of them, of course, but like, you know, who are going to go in their cave for a week or two and like, you know, work on their thing and are maybe a little bit more gruff or difficult to deal with. Um, you know, we're not all like perfectly interchangeable cogs yeah. in either direction. So, you know, making sure that you're, that you're aligning people with their strengths. I think one of the, you know, one of the lessons that I've, I'm still learning as a manager is how do you align people with their strengths? How do you find people's strengths, align them their strengths and find the things that they could be good at, but they're not good at yet so that they can grow those. But also just like acknowledge that, yeah, if this manager is just not very good at thinking about and managing like operations teams, like, the, you know, operations, you know, engineers, DevOps engineers, whatever, just constantly quit when they work for this person. Like maybe this person shouldn't be managing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe this is just not, not a good fit. Right. And, and we should give management of those, of that group to someone else who's better at it. Yeah. It sort of occurred to me that the hardest part, you know, it's, it's easy to speak up if you have positive feedback um, if there's a big problem, then maybe it's not as easy to speak up, but you know, at least you can articulate it if it's something very specific, but there's sort of that middle case where, you know, you're assigned a new manager and you have thoughts on who you want to become and who you want to work with every day. And you don't want the thoughts to reflect poorly on the manager involved. And so those discussions I find the hardest because they seem very sensitive. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's, it's hard. It's hard to give you know, sometimes you're just working for someone that you don't gel with and it's not their fault. It's not your fault. It's just, it's not a match. Yeah. And yeah, that, that's, and that's, that can be, you know, these are human relationships, right? Human relationships are tough. One interesting part that I saw here uh, as I was reading through the book and I did read the whole thing. Uh, it was on the engineering ladder, which is how engineers are promoted and classified into different levels. Um, so that one was of interest to me because I've had a lot of problems with engineering ladders in the past. I understand the need for them. I understand the need for engineering management in general. I just, I see the difference when I start podcasting. I started this podcast back in February. It's lovely because no one tells me that I'm a podcaster level three and that I can be a podcast level four. <laughs> I have my audience. I could focus on my audience. I could focus on quality. I could focus on my website, whatever I want. And I define what better is. And so I kind of want my work to be the same. You know, I don't want to devote time worrying about my number. Even when we introduced an engineering ladder, I was like, okay, this is okay, but I'm just going to focus on my work and the quality of my work. But then sometimes there are times you have to worry about your number. And then you have to worry about like the committee of people who aren't necessarily the people that you're modeling your career after who are going to make that decision. So engineering ladders are a lot tougher than their look. I've definitely heard a lot of people, uh, a lot of, engineering managers and sort of CTOs and VPs say, uh, you know, well, I introduced an engineering ladder and that was way harder than I thought. I've, I've heard that several times. So what have you learned when designing an engineering ladder and uh, what are your thoughts on how we can make that process better? Yeah, well, you know, so um, amusingly, the first ladder that I ever used was, uh, was heavily uh, adapted from Foursquare's ladder at the time. Um, so, I knew it. I knew oh, it yeah. reading the book. You I didn't I, mention so, Foursquare, but I was like, that sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, I, uh, so I'm so i very good friends with Harry Heyman, who was the head of engineering at Foursquare for a long time. Um, and when it came time for me to do an engineering ladder, I talked to my friends. Um, and I was like, who's got one that they like? And Harry had one that he had created. Um, and it was, you know, it was nice. It had a lot of nice aspects to it, right? Like I love the 
the attributes, which I think are maybe even still, they might even be in my, in the book where it's sort of the like D and D Dungeons and Dragons attributes, you know, strength yeah. and wisdom and, and all of that stuff. Um, you know, I loved that, that conceit and, you know, it seemed fairly straightforward and like, you know, I didn't, didn't have any major arguments with it. And so I basically, I used that, I tweaked it some, um, and I rolled it out to my team and it was a disaster. <laughs> and I thought a lot about why this had worked so well with Harry, or at least according to him, it worked well. And I, you know, I, I can't say, obviously I wasn't at Foursquare, but you know, it seems like Harry made it, managed to make the latter work okay with the Foursquare engineering team at the time. And it didn't work at all with my team. And, and I think that, you know, I learned a lot about writing ladders in that process, which is, you know, the first square engineering team, and this is, would have been back in like 2012, 2013, something like that time frame. Um, they they were a a somewhat more um, somewhat more homogenous team than the team that I had. So you know, Harry had hired a lot of people from right. Google. Um, so a lot of the engineers actually shared a lot of DNA and they were, they sort of knew how things work. Like if you, if you work at Google, like Google has a way yeah. that they do things. And there were enough people in the company that kind of got that, that, you know, he could afford to have a ladder that was a little bit lighter on details um, because there was just this shared context amongst enough people at the company that it, that it was interesting okay. Because for those of us who came in from outside Google, we didn't have the same context yeah, I, 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 Not, I'm sure that's true. I mean, it wasn't true. a huge problem, but we've gone through several iterations. Yeah, so, you know, so when I tried to roll this out and run the runway, I just got a lot of, I, like, I rolled it out, and it was okay. But there was a lot of pushback and a lot of unhappiness. And what I realized was that, like, the, that ladder worked fine for a team with a lot of shared context. My team did not come yeah. from one company. We didn't, we came from all over. We had a very wide variety of backgrounds and, you know, and, and I needed to be more specific with people. <laughs> I needed to, I needed to like put more into it. And so we actually rewrote my ladder with a lot more detail. Um, and it wasn't just me by myself this time. So, so the first time I basically took the ladder that had been written by Harry and whoever else at Foursquare. I don't think it was just Harry, but you know, by the people at Foursquare, I made some tweaks to make it, you know, make more sense with my company. But I largely kept it, you know, it wasn't that much different. Um, and I just sort of dropped it on people. And when I when I when I did it again, it was a much more of a team effort. So I worked with you know, the other managers and senior engineers at the company, and particularly for some of the lower levels, I really got a lot more feedback from them uh, and, and used some of their work. You know, they, they did some of the work on actually describing the levels. I also actually, um, so I happen to be uh, married to an engineer from Google. And uh, so, so Google actually, at, right around the same time, was doing a big effort to increase the descriptiveness of their own internal ladder. And so I will fully admit that I also, you know, looked over his shoulder a little bit at some of the new words that Google was, Googlers, and Googlers definitely did this also internally as like a group effort. A lot of people were involved. Um, some of the words they were using to describe, uh, you know, various levels. And, you know, I didn't copy paste any of it, but I, I learned from that. You know, I, I, I tried to like get more feedback and get more data. And, and I ended up writing a much more descriptive ladder. And, you know, part of the reason it's like in my book and, and I talk about it a lot is that 
I then actually, a, a few months later, I actually published the ladders publicly uh, on the Rent the Runway blog. And they're, you know, you can still find them, I'm pretty sure, to this day. They're on so Google they're Drive. Are- I think it should be, yeah. And I certainly have... I certainly have copies of them on Google Drive, and if it ever goes down, uh, if the you know right the one my tech blog ever loses that post, I'm happy to just repost it for people because um, because what I realized after I wrote this and I did all this work was that like I was lucky. I had friends and contacts who gave me access to their thinking on the topic. Right? I had Harry giving me access to the Foursquare ladder. I had my husband at Google letting me peek over his shoulder and look at what Google had done. And a lot of people out there at small startups didn't have that network. And it's so hard to write an engineering ladder from scratch. I think, I don't even think you can. Yeah. I think it's impossible. Um, and so I was like, you know what, if, if this exercise is valuable and we can certainly debate the pros and cons of an engineering ladder, but if this exercise is valuable, there are a lot of people out there that probably want a starting point. And so I'm just going to publish this. <laughs> and, you know, I got I, I sort of, you know, socialized it with some of the other executives that run the runway, making sure nobody was going to freak out about it on a legal sense. And then I just put it up. And it was it was actually a very, very popular thing that I did. It was it was surprisingly, you know, well referenced. And I think it led to a lot of people reading it, making their own letters, publishing their own letters. You still see this happen now. Um, and it's one of the things that I'm you know, very proud of having having done and having kind of influenced the industry on, because I think that you know, HR type processes are actually in the same way that like we can learn from each other's source code or systems, we can learn from each other's HR processes. And if you're at a small company where you don't have like, you know, a huge amount of resources of experienced people who have already done this before, it's nice to have open source, you know, uh, open source uh, material like this that you can draw from and, and at least use as a starting point. I think that's great that it's out there because yeah, like you said, it's, it's very difficult. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we could do at Foursquare is add a little bit more specifics. I mean, you know, we've made some changes over the years, but um, having it be more, having more specific, it, it's very, it's impossible to be ex- exactly precise with these things because so many people do very different jobs and um, a, a lot of it is subjective, but taking the like a hundred percent subjectivity out of it is is always helpful. It's always makes people calm down a little bit because there's a, there's a tendency to think that you're getting like overlooked, and that's where a lot of people, um, you know, have have problems with the engineering ladder. So I'm glad that you put it online. I'm going to link to it in my show notes page. Um, let's talk about you know why these are needed. I've had some. Uh, some companies where I've had an engineering ladder, a few early stage startups, I guess in the early days of Foursquare, there was no engineering ladder. Uh, in the early days of, uh, I guess when I was at Yodel, there was no engineering ladder. What do you think is the goal of the ladder and how, what's your definition of whether it's working or not? Look, as you said, right, it makes helps people calm down a little bit. Um, so I think there's a point at a stage of growth in a company where right. people want to know what their career path looks like. And that's pretty natural that they want that. You know, if they go to a big company, they're going to get something like that. Most big companies don't just have, there are a few, I think maybe um, uh, like, maybe like Amazon or Netflix. They, there, there are a few companies that, that are a little bit funny and that they, they don't really have very many levels. But I think, you know, a lot of companies, Google, certainly Microsoft, certainly, uh, you know, they have, they have a lot of like engineering levels that you can, that you can reach, that you can have make goals around achieving. 
And there are a lot of people who like that. They like to kind of have an idea of where their career is going to progress. And, you know, what am I going to be doing in the future at this company? What do I need to what do I need to get better at to become a better engineer or to become a better manager or to become a better data scientist or whatever my role is? Um, and so I think, you know, I think as companies grow, they're a good thing to introduce um, because they do take out some of that subjectivity. They're also useful for hiring to some extent. Um, you know, if you if you know that you need to hire someone into a senior role, but you can't really define what senior role means or is, um, it's sort of hard to know what to look for. You know, you just have a bunch of people going on their gut instincts. And, you know, we all know that being nonspecific tends to yeah. lead to a lot of bias. Um, that is not necessarily what we really want to have in our hiring processes. Um, the other thing that ladders do, not at every company, but at many companies, is, you know, they are used as a basis for how much should we be paying people? And are we paying people fairly? So again, if you don't really have any way of saying these two people are expected to be doing roughly the same level of work. Um, and, you know, how do you know that you're paying yeah. people fairly? Right. I mean, I guess you could do it simply like number of years of experience. And there, there are certainly, you know, careers where that's the, that's the basis. But I think a lot of engineers yeah. don't like that idea. Right. We want to feel like we're, we're actually getting paid because we're, you know, making a certain level of difference or, you know, we're doing a certain quality of work or we're, we're, you know, we're capable of working at a certain scope. Um, and so having some kind of, you know, hopefully somewhat objective measure uh, or set of, uh, set of expectations. Now, it's interesting because I've gone on, on job interviews and when I was looking for a job, I never asked about the engineering ladder. Is that something that you could do if you're seeking a, uh, a job? Can you ask to see and, and you get, you know, uh, an offer uh, and you're deciding is that something that people do? They ask to see the career ladder? Um, certainly some people ask to see it. Um, so a lot of people ask what level they're being right. hired in at um, and what it would take to get to the next level. Um, that's a pretty, it's not, you know, the most common question that I, that I see, but certainly it's not uncommon at all for new, for candidates to say, okay, so you're, you know, I want to make sure I'm being hired in at the right level for where I think I am in my career. Um, and I want to make sure that I'm, you know, that I know what it's going to take to get to whatever the next level is. And can you talk about some of the things that, that I might do in the next, the first year or two here, maybe to, you know, to be able to, to get to that. That's actually, you know, not an uncommon thing for a candidate to ask about. And, you know, it's sometimes it's a hard thing to answer as a manager, right. especially when it's just, when all you know about a person is really right, an interview. Right. And so you're sort of like, think you need to do this, but you know, things are going to change, but still having some kind of an answer to that is a good thing to be. Yeah. Able but to now that I think about it, like when you're trying to learn about a company and if you could actually see the document and say, and ask questions like, so why did you make the decision to write this here? Um, you know, for, for the senior level, uh, you know, it, it might tell you a lot about, you know, what the company values. So I don't know. It's just an interesting idea. I've never asked about it, but, uh, it's, um, now that I think about it, it might be a good idea. Um, and it also kind of shows, you know, how much that company thought about career paths um, in the past. Uh, so, all right. I want to, first of all, I, I, I'm really glad that you put out the book because I think all of these discussions about making people work together better at work and be happier at work. And we need a lot more people thinking, um, you know, uh, thinking more deeply about that. I think a lot of um, engineers and managers are both going about their are all going about their day-to-day -day job and um, 
and we, we forget the big picture sometimes. So I want to end on a positive note by addressing the people in this audience that may have a creative side, but they're also advancing through their career with you know, lots of meetings and tightly packed schedules. You've been able to write and you've been able to present, you know, for me, I'm taking some time off, but that's not always possible, um, or I just have a packed schedule. Do you think it's possible to have a high-level engineering or management career and also kind of do creative projects on the side? And what would you recommend to people who want to do this or that, like they need a creative outlet? Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of CTO level people and, you know, heads of engineering that have, you know, that that have side projects. And the hard, actually, I would say the harder thing about side projects is, you know, it really more about your personal life than your than your work life to some extent. Yeah. Um, because, you know, once you start having kids and you have young kids, that takes a lot of time. And that's just a, a fact of life <laughs> right. for, for, for many of us, myself included. I have a I have a young son. Um, what, but I do think that, you know, what I have done to kind of try to keep in some creative habits and I'm not as good as some people, you know, I, I definitely know people who have that, just that creative drive that they, you know, they, they they have their technical side projects or, you know, they're in a band or, you know, those people just really impress me. Um, yeah. the best I, the best I managed to do is I, I write occasionally and, and I give talks, which are actually very creatively draining. And you know, the thing, the thing to realize and the thing that I have to be very clear about is that like, I do make a trade-off of personal time when I do these things, right? When I write a blog post, it's on, it's, you know, after work at night or it's on a weekend. And, you know, I'm lucky to have a very wonderful husband who spends a lot of time with our son. And we also have, you know, some additional help and uh, that, you know, that we can use so that we have some spare time. But I mean, that spare time that I'm spending writing or working on a talk that I'm not spending hanging out with friends or playing video games or watching Netflix or, you know, whatever. Right. Um, and so, you know, I do think that like, it, it's definitely possible. And I think it's, I think it has some value to, to trying to keep a creative something on the side. It doesn't have to be related to work. Um, just because, yeah, you know, it, it can be whatever, right? Uh, whatever makes you happy. Um, but it takes time. It does. Time. It does. It's, it takes time and patience. Um, I learned with this podcast, it's, I, <laughs> it's not like I got up one day and said, let's do it. And then the next day I was recording. Oh, no, no, no. It took, took years almost. Um, and and, uh, and writing is hard, but I feel like there's something for something to be said with, you know, getting your head out of the code and getting your head out of the grind of your particular company um, in in order to think about different things and think about the big picture. So I I, I think that's uh, that's good advice. Um, I will send people to your book. Is there anything else that we should check out? You mentioned you have a blog post. Should, should I post the blog? Uh, yeah. Um, yes, you can. You can find my blog and I will. Uh, well, I have I have like a, a formal speaking website, which is CamilleTalk.com. Um, but my, my blog, my blog is, uh, is Alighted Branches. Um, and so if you go to alightedbranches.com, you can find it there. All, most of these posts are also on Medium. Um, so if you look at Medium at Scamille, um, you'll find me, you'll find me there. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty easy to, to find if you're interested in my writing. Uh, it's kind of, I, I try to put it out there widely so people can find it and, hopefully learn something from it. Awesome. All right. Looks like we're about to wrap up. Any last words before, uh, before we head out? 
Uh, no, but I, I, it was great chatting with you, and I hope you know I hope your audience learned something, enjoyed the talk, and uh, you know I'm always happy to hear from people. So if anybody wants to reach out, you can you know drop me an email, or I'm I'm very active on Twitter at Scamille. Awesome! Thanks for being on the show. All right, thank you. All right, as promised, I want to review some of the emails that have been sent to me. Uh, respond to listener emails. I got a lot of response to episode 33. Ads, bias, censorship, democracy. That's the A, B, C, D episode. Uh, Here's one about ads. I'm going to shorten these for anonymity and brevity. Uh, I just listened to episode 33, and your story about Facebook banning your ad for reasons of politics and issues of national importance hit home as I've dealt with the same issue recently. My guess is that your ad was flagged simply for containing trigger words like assembly member. Based on my experience, it seems like Facebook is using a super sensitive and rather dumb natural language processing system to determine what runs afoul of their policies. I've had ads get flagged for containing alcohol content and being targeted to people under 21 in the past because if you navigated around the website the ad linked to, you could find links to restaurants and bars and those restaurants and bars had alcohol listings on their pages. So your show notes page may have played a role in the persistent disapproval of your ad. Well, yeah, that's crazy. Uh, So regardless of what their intention is and how the ad system is supposed to work, uh, this is the story that I hear a lot from marketers and now having experienced it myself, you know, I can see it. So, you know, Facebook might just not have the financial incentive to make things easier for the little guy and they probably put in a lot of policies over the years for stuff that either scared them or their lawyers told them they have to do. I don't know. I think the ads product is ripe for change and and creative destruction, uh, hopefully sometime in the near future. Another listener spoke about bias and censorship. He wrote, of course, I'm not biased, but everyone else is. And then the advent of television brought us people who were more photogenic and comfortable in front of the camera to the detriment of those better potential leaders who were not comfortable in this media. However, the introduction of the World Wide Web brought us an opportunity to learn so much, and this has been squandered. Google and Facebook block people into tiny little spaces that are less about education than affirmation. Their whole business plan is to put you into a tiny box and then bombard you with advertisements. And later on, censorship never works in the manner it is intended. I remember when the books were promoted as banned in Boston, or books were promoted as banned in Boston. Instead of this censorship working, it drew more readers who sought to find out what caused this book to be banned. Well, uh, yeah, I completely agree with the censorship on, uh, with the, I agree with the censorship. No, I completely agree with the sentiment on censorship. So, you know, I'm thankful that I live in the country with the First Amendment you know, enshrined in the Constitution and in the culture. Uh, they don't have that everywhere. And it, it certainly works for this medium podcasting. And I guess when it comes down to it, I'm just someone who has faith that with many voices, even with fake news and, and crazy voices, eventually individuals in society will find a way to obtain the truth in all of that, uh, as difficult as it may be. Um, and if you want to say, you know, uh, no, only the truth and the official narrative are allowed, and I think there's a lot of people who aesthetically just just want that, then I think, you know, initially you can clear out a lot of things that are wrong, but then there's no learning and there's no, there's no dynamic and, and the ability to spot good ideas from bad ones kind of atrophy. 
So there's so much that can be said about this. We probably do a whole episode on this. Uh, now on the ad side, I definitely feel the frustration with the way that the internet works right now. Um, the idea behind ads, and remember, you know, I work on ads. The idea is that we can make uh, important services free and available to use for anyone with ads. Not all advertisements are bad. I mean, sometimes you find things that uh, that uh, really help you out. I mean, the products are, you know, products are are in many cases very helpful to consumers. I mean, a lot of the books uh, that I found and talk about on this program, I found through ads and through recommender systems. So, um, yeah, sometimes this works well. And, you know, as a lot of people are pointing out to me, sometimes it doesn't. And I see it myself. You know, the, I think that, um, the internet is so new that it's only recently that I think we've matured in terms of having a slower rate of killer apps coming out that we're finally tackling some uh, uh, tackling some of these deeper issues like what's good for you what's wasting your time you know i'm going to link to episode 12 where i spoke to uh the foursquare product manager marissa chaco on this uh digital friends digital enemies because this is something that uh that i think is relevant and i want to speak to more but yeah that's something that i'm thinking about for future products build something that's entertaining enough for people to use but is also in their interest to use it and I want to have ads and ad recommendations that are actually something that, you know, would help the person who's seeing the ad so they can get, quote, paid for it through free services, but it also doesn't, doesn't bother them. It, it could be like a net positive for them to see the ad anyway. All right. So with that, I'm going to call it a show. I don't know exactly my guest schedule but I have some more cryptocurrency episodes coming up. Uh, I have some interesting, some sort of new types of people coming up, maybe, and maybe a follow-up of my sabbatical projects. So uh, that's what I've got going on. Uh, as always, ideas to Local Max Radio. Uh, check out the new website, localmaxradio.com. Uh, this episode will be localmaxradio.com slash 35. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power. And she said, I don't care what you say. You're gonna say.